Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using... Perfect. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa in the heartland of America. (laughs) I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Today, Jacob is going to bring us something absolutely amazing, stunning, remarkable, pop in culture. It is actually, so Mm -hmm. I'm glad you're ready for it. (laughs) prepared myself both emotionally and mentally (laughs) then in the academic deep dive segment we're going to discuss the academic article adult children's daily experiences with parental advice the importance of life problems and relationship quality just reading that i'm already having uh, emotional reactions to it so this is going to be fantastic (laughs) and then in good or bad advice we are discussing advice from yet again the social medias they just have so much advice that they want to give us as always if you have advice that you want us to talk about send it to us you can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com tweet us facebook us instagram us all of the socials at attached podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message while you're surfing those worldwide webs please know that we also have a youtube page so like and subscribe the podcast on YouTube and also like and subscribe to this podcast on wherever you're listening to us on those wonderful podcast apps. Well, before we get to this wonderful episode, I'm just curious, how are you guys doing today? So I just wanted to follow up because I know our listeners and both of you are curious. Cat blinking is going very well. Oh my God. (laughs) So, the world wants to know, Jacob, how is the cat so, blinking going? <laughs> so honestly, and maybe it's just like the placebo effect, but I feel like one of our feral cats is much braver since I have been blinking at him. Mm-hmm. So I am going to no longer doubt the science of cat blinking. I'm just throwing that out there. Like I know I'm an N of one, but yeah. if you go and find the original article, you can see in this randomized control trial, they do have evidence that cat blinking works. So just throwing that out there. But- I just would like to circle back to one of your feral cats. (laughs) So you have more than one feral cat is what you're saying. We have two feral cats. Wow. So what happened is there was a mom, her name was Tanya and we were feeding her. And then she gave birth to three babies. The oldest baby, Antonia, then tragically died in... Oh, God. <laughs> we don't know how. They just disappeared. And so we had two little ones. They also could have been adopted by someone else, right? No, because they were living underneath our porch. So we saw them almost every day, and then all of a sudden they disappeared. Okay. But so we had the older one, the large one. I don't know if he's actually older. I wasn't present for the birth. Right. But the <laughs> like, older one... The, old, the larger one bit. Spiraling. <laughs> the larger one bit. We really started bringing in and he started trusting us and he would come in and visit us. And then Sis, the smaller one, the little girl, Naturally. she was 
like just really scared. And one day I was down doing laundry in our basement and I heard this meow and I couldn't see where it was coming from. And I looked up in our little window, it was her. And I was like, Chelsea, come here. And we looked up, we saw her, Chelsea went over and opened the door and she ran in and has never left our house since. So she's the most feral because she was on her own for a little while too. But oh, sure. mm-hmm. um, that's but blinking is really going to turn that around. <laughs> I mean, EMDR, right? How is that? How is that different? Science. Science. (laughs) Anyway, we're doing good. We're doing good. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. Woods? I too have been adopting feral cats. No, it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be an interesting podcast. (laughs) Yeah. No, I would never. Title, adopting feral cats. (laughs) No, I think instead, I I feel like Jacob will will appreciate this update. (laughs) Lately, we have been watching episodes of the making of Frozen 2. Let it go. Oh, the the Frozen 2. Into the unknown. (laughs) We discovered it on Disney Plus. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it is extending our Frozen viewership Uh into behind the scenes details. And I am telling you, we are loving it. I mean, anything with Jonathan Groff, and I would 100% agree. How could you not love it? It's Jonathan Groff. I mean, we are waiting every night until the hour that it is socially acceptable to watch television, and then we are making popcorn and watching our behind-the-scenes Frozen 2, and if you haven't watched it, I promise you, you will love it. The fact that these people spend four years making a movie, the amount of effort it takes to go into any few seconds of this film, it's really incredible, and that updates for, for Jacob. Well, Sarah, you've stolen what I was going to talk about in pop and culture. Oh, no. What is that? No, 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 you didn't. That was mean. That was mean. (laughs) I'm never going to be up to the current times enough to have anything to do with pop culture content. (laughs) I think we should have an episode one time where we kind of all switch roles for a little bit and we make Sarah do pop and culture. Well, um, I think that stress. would be. I think that would could be fun. It could be fun. Talk to me a little bit about what your academic deep dive will look like. It'll probably be just something that I wrote myself that I could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it feels it feels like a fit though. It's, it's honest. It's I so mean, honest. let's be real. I'll be like, oh, self promotion. We gotta go. We gotta go in and like five minutes. What can I talk about? What can I talk about? Oh, I, yeah. I wrote this paper. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. The prep you give me for that is like, hey, remember that paper I wrote five years ago? Talk about that. Oh, cool. Thanks, Jacob. <laughs> that seems oh, about right. So that honest. seems about right. What, our segments fit our personality. Let's, That's true. Let's just, let's just be honest about that. I love it. So this week, the kids were on fall break. It was, it was, I'm going to be honest, it was fantastic. They were I had no homeschool responsibilities. It wasn't like Mm. pre-pandemic, but it was like the closest thing to my memory of Mm. of that. It's so Uh, far away. It was so far away. I don't remember what it's like to Mm. just work during the day and then like be family in the evenings. Mm. But it was as close as I can remember what that felt like. I was the most productive I think I've been in seven months nine months 24 months how long has it been i don't remember but it was it was lovely it was it was fantastic and the kids had a good time (laughs) my oldest said 
I don't want to go back to school. I'm like, oh, that's not an option. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. You can't not go back to school. It's the law. <laughs> we put in jail. I'm sorry. But yeah, now we're about to venture into another week of homeschooling. And, you know, I'm super excited about it. I'm not. I'm not excited about it. Our listeners, her face, her face suggested otherwise entirely. Sarcasm. We call that sarcasm. sarcasm. Sometimes it's hard to read sarcasm in me because sometimes my serious voice and my sarcastic voice sounds the same, mm-hmm. but I'm not nearly as bad as my husband. Like I, we've been married for almost 10 years and I still have to check. I'm like, is that, is that sarcasm or are you being serious? <laughs> He's like, I was being sarcastic. And I was like, he was like, how do you think? why do you think I would say that? I'm, like, I'm really sorry. I just really couldn't tell. Um, but thanks for checking in with me. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we always like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture, you know, really cutting edge pop culture events that influence people's lives and how they view relationships. So Jacob, what do you got for us this week? Was that cutting edge statement a dig at me or a dig at Sarah? I, I couldn't no tell. No one knows. I <laughs> no, I don't even know. So in the fall is the is the season where Chelsea and I love to watch horror shows. Oh, no. And so last fall, a year ago, we watched The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Did y'all ever watch that? No. I'm not asking you, Sarah. I'm not asking. Stop. Um, (laughs) I'm already answering, too. That's so mean. (laughs) Oh, I've never Um, seen it. Come on. I think horror is the one genre of entertainment that I actively avoid. I can't handle it. It's it's too scary for me. Well, so the follow-up of The Haunting of Hill House was just this last fall, last month or so, was released on Netflix called The Haunting of Bly Manor. And what is really cool about both of these is it shows how intergenerational transmission of trauma, of Mm. um, all of this stuff can really affect relationships in the future. So I want to talk specifically about The Haunting of Bly Manor because I thought it was so 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 interesting caution there will be lots of spoilers so if you're gonna watch it please remove your headphones now and come back in about five minutes five minutes yeah so what it takes place is the haunting of blind manor focuses on a family two two little kids they're like eight and six who lost their parents in a tragic accident oh no but unbeknownst to these kids their mom was having an affair with their uncle oh my and their dad, well, the daughter's dad doesn't, isn't actually who she thinks is <gasps> the dad, isn't actually her dad. Oh my. And at the same time, there was this, the family, their their generations in like the 1700s who first owned this home had a similar pattern occur for them. And because the mom found out that her husband was cheating on her with her sister, they actually get stuck in this manor as ghosts. Nobody who dies in the manor can actually leave. Oh. And what happens is throughout the course of the show, you see how this intergenerational pattern replicates yes. this trauma okay. and this dysfunction within their family system that makes it so everybody is just stuck in Bly Manor. 
In the end, the nanny actually ends up rescuing the kids. But in order to do this, she has to take on this. She has to let this ghost come inside her. And we'll, oh. we'll circle back to that first. But yeah, we'll let's talk circle about back that. to it. <laughs> but the first thing I think this illustrates, even though they weren't necessarily trying to, it shows, I think, some of the research around epigenetic transmission of trauma. Mm -hmm. So if you're not familiar with like epigenetics, they're really the chemicals and things in our bodies that turn on and off genes. And there's this really cool researcher, her name is Rachel Yehuda. She's at Mount Sinai Hospital. She's done a lot of cool work around this and has shown how children whose parents survived the Holocaust mm -hmm. actually have different epigenetic markers that leave them more at risk to develop uh, depression, anxiety, wow. and other potential health outcomes. And so what's interesting is we often don't think about how we are connected to our family members trauma biologically. Like we can think about, oh yeah, we get genes passed down from our families and that's why we're similar to them. But these traumatic experiences that occur can also shift our responses in day-to-day -day life. The other thing that I thought was really interesting and what I loved about The Haunting of Blind Manor is it ends up being an incredible love story where Chelsea and I were like the last episode just crying the whole way through because it's so sweet, right? So this nanny, she falls in love with the caretaker and these two women like go on to have this life together. But hanging in the background is the fact that she's taken on the ghost of this woman from the 1700s who she knows is eventually going to kill her right who's going to come back oh. possess her body and make her and basically end their relationship so right so throughout this whole last episode they're talking about we don't know how many days together we have left oh. and it spans years and years and then all of a sudden she she kind of disappears and is taken from the oh. caretaker and it's really sad there was a great commentary though on it about in a in an article in vulture the, the culture magazine that talked about, you know, this is true of a lot of relationships. Sometimes we're in the context where the person we are in love with may have a chronic illness or something we know could flare up oh. and, and dramatic, dramatically change our relationship. And I thought this series really illustrates those two important components of health, trauma, relationships all work together to create uncertainty and fear in our lives. But if you can, like this, this really awesome couple, it's just a beautiful love story at the end, how they build something incredible and great, even in the context of such a traumatic history, I thought was really inspiring and really put a nice bow on a really scary series. So check out the Haunting of Bly Manor and watch The Haunting of Hill House first because there's some really cool family dynamics in there to watch as well. But really good. Check it out. Think about epigenetics. Think about trauma. Think about caring for your loved ones who may have a chronic illness. Really interesting. Fantastic. I probably won't watch it, but I love the I love the the story behind it. Well, I'm thinking Sarah might start popping that popcorn and you know, after an episode of The Making of Frozen 2, pop in some Haunting of Black. I have been scrolling past the trailer for that show that you are describing <laughs> so quick. Yeah. Before, before it can get me. <laughs> Netflix loves to blast that stuff. Oh. I'm like, I so just got onto your website. Like, give me a second. Like, geez Louise. Um, but I'm glad that people are enjoying it who like scary stuff. It's, it's, it's good. Good, good, good. good.
Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Adult Children's Daily Experiences with Parental Advice, the Importance of Life Problems and Relationship Quality. Written by Dr. Hawaii Wong at Penn State, Drs. Ki Youngman Kim and Jeffrey Burr at UMass Boston, Dr. Kira Burdett at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Karen Fingerman at UT Austin. Recently accepted for publication in the Journal of Gerontology Series B, these authors explored a topic many of us can relate to, parents giving advice to their adult children. I certainly can. Specifically, they took a look at how young children receive advice from their parents. They also frame parental advice as a type of informational support as opposed to more tangible support, like parents giving their kids money or helping with childcare. Parents may be especially likely to give their adult children advice when their kids are in the middle of bigger life problems, such as divorce, job hunting, and health issues. And previous research shows that children who receive intense support from parents often report better well-being than their peers who do not. What many of you may be able to understand is the author's description that children's desire for support and the support they get from their parents is not always complimentary. In other words, adult kids may experience their parents' advice as intrusive, unhelpful, or overstepping, especially if their relationship with their parents is otherwise maybe a bit tricky, or if they feel like it says something about their own ability to deal with their problems, because we don't know very much about how adult children receive parental advice and how they feel about it, these authors decided to dig in a little deeper about this specifically. So Sarah, how, pray tell, did they go about doing this? So to be clear, again, they in general are hypothesizing that parental advice is most often a positive thing. So they're they're hypothesizing that receiving parental advice, for example, will be connected to improved mood on the days that it's received, but that there are variations in this process, meaning that for adult children with more life problems or for adult children who have a more negative quality of relationship with their parents, that advice may be more likely to be perceived as unwanted and then have really kind of negative effects on their well-being. So they started with the second wave of the family exchanges study, which I believe is a project that is run by the last author on this paper. And they specifically wanted to look at young adult children, 18 to 30. So the original sample in this project included 633 middle-aged adults in the Philadelphia metropolitan area and their grown children. This wave that they pulled from included 455 of those original adult children offspring and 285 additional ones. Wow. 230 of those completed a daily diary survey up to seven days. So this project that we're going to describe today has a total of 152 18 to 30 year olds from 119 families that completed this daily diary responses. So in addition to the main survey where their parent reported on the adult child's life problems that happened in the last two years, including, for example, disabilities or other health problems and psychological problems, financial issues, the death of somebody close to them, et cetera. They also reported on their own 
positive and negative aspects of their relationship with their parent. But the daily diary data included not only reports of their mood every day, so positive and negative aspects of their mood, but also the questions, did your father or mother give you advice or information since for example, we spoke yesterday, that is helping with a decision or giving suggestions about things you could do. And then a second question about, did your mom or dad give you unwanted advice? So what they found was that most adult children in this sample received advice from their parents. Three fourths of them got advice from their moms and more than half got advice from their dads during the week. And many of them also received unwanted advice. About a fourth received unwanted advice from moms and uh, 16% got unwanted advice from their dad. So there's a decent amount of advice going from parents to these adult children. They did not find, though they hypothesized that they would, they did not find that life problems that these adult children experienced over the past few years were associated with the receipt of this advice from parents. So those two things were not associated. The more problems I had... Yeah. The more advice it, it didn't, it wasn't associated with how much advice I got. So parents are just going to give advice no matter if you have uh, uh, problems or not. <laughs> sure. That's one way to interpret it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't hear it that way, but now I do. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my bad. No, that's good. Oh. Yeah. Nope. That's good. They did find that the more positive the parent child relationship, the more likely they were to receive advice. So yeah, but actually, let me read this next one too. More, the more negative the parent-child relationship, the more likely they were to perceive that advice is unwanted. Mm. So you're right. Maybe they're just giving advice no matter what. It was a takeaway. I don't think I have that takeaway. <laughs> let me uh, reevaluate when I am um, done summarizing this whole project. No, don't. <laughs> Parents going to advise. Parents be so- advising. <laughs> Oopsie doopsies, given advice. So they also found an association between receiving advice from moms specifically. Uh, And did we just find a title for the episode? Parents be given advice. Parents be advising. Receiving advice from mom was associated with higher levels of positive mood. Dad advice and unwanted advice, not associated. And this association didn't differ depending on whether that adult child had life problems nor was it affected by parent-child relationship quality. So receiving advice from mom, higher levels of positive mood. That's a different take. I hear that takeaway different based on your interpretation now, Patricia. Mom's going to advise in general. It's got good effects. <laughs> However, if an adult child perceived they were getting unwanted advice from either of their parent, mm-hmm. it was associated with higher levels of negative mood. For moms, if I got unwanted advice from a mom that was associated with higher levels of negative mood for especially adult kids with life problems, more life problems, not so for kids with no life problems, and for adult kids that had higher levels of negative relationship quality with moms. And if I got unwanted advice from dad, that was associated with higher levels of negative mood, especially if I had lower levels of positive relationship quality with dad. So there was some variation depending on my relationship quality. If I'm getting unwanted advice, that is it is more likely the case that it has a negative effect on me if I also have a more problematic relationship with my with that parent. Yeah, I mean, which um, completely makes sense, right? You didn't want it, so of course I'm going to be in a worse mood. Well, well, I didn't, I didn't want it, but also, <laughs> yes, that was true. I was going to make it worse, but also that was even more exaggerated if I didn't want it, and I feel like you and I don't have the most yeah. positive relationship. 
So what I thought was interesting is that the life problems of these kids were reported by their parents over the past two years. So it made me kind of curious about whether like the advice that they were reporting over these seven days had anything to do with like parents having more anxiety over the more life problems my kid has, the more I'm going to start distributing this advice or my perception of that being unwanted, being related to maybe my level of stress or anxiety. Right. Like if they had captured adult children, I'm saying my a lot. I don't mean to be tying this study <laughs> to my own personal experience. I hear it. I hear oh, it. Um, just so you <laughs> know, not... all of my comments have been definitely colored through my own lenses. So no, it's perfectly fine. My mom listens to this. This isn't how I feel. <laughs> But I just thought it was interesting that it's con- it's unclear from the adult child's perspective whether those life problems, air quoting, from the last two years are still ongoing and how that might affect my stress level. Because if I'm especially stressed, you could see that maybe any advice might feel like yeah. overload, right? So, so I had some notes on what I thought we could take away from this paper there. They feel different now. There's a phrase like, ask and you shall receive. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think that is part of how they introduce this idea that in general, adult children find advice from their parents to be very normative and very, very important. So I think there is a a message that adult kids need their parents. Life problems are not a strong predictor of how kids perceive their parents' advice in these findings. So in general, kids don't develop into adulthood and all of a sudden stop needing their parents. This This is a really normative process. But I think there could be a takeaway of sometimes it could be helpful to ask yeah. If your adult child wants advice before distributing said advice, 100%. it is something that we try to teach in family therapy. It's something we try to, it's something I try to teach the physicians that I work with that before we give patients advice, sometimes it can be really helpful to ask if they even want it because otherwise you're just spending, expending a lot of effort and they're potentially getting really frustrated on the other side. Like I've tried all these things, or I don't have the energy to do anything that you're talking about. And you don't know that, but you come out exhausted and they come out frustrated. And that's not, that's not effective. All you need is an empathetic listening ear to help manage your, your stress. You don't necessarily need any recommendations for change or advice. Right. So I, I like that waiting until someone solicits you for advice before you just asking, right? I have some thoughts about this. How do you feel? Are you open to my kind of giving some suggestions? Bidirectional. You're right. It goes both ways. Yeah. (laughs) Families. I also, I think because there is some nuance here that unwanted advice might be especially negative for people who have trickier relationships with their parents that are maybe Mm. more strained and less positive. I think advice could be a takeaway that advice might not be like the number one go-to strategy to build a relationship with kids if their relationship is already negative because they're they're going to be more likely to feel like that advice is is not something that they wanted it might feel more intrusive and then i have a question about whether then that unwanted advice then perpetuates the negativity in that relationship which is not something they looked at here but i think for me because i even have it as a question made it made it something i was thinking about when i was done reading another another possible takeaway mm-hmm. yeah i was going to that's kind of where mine went, my mind went as well, but also kind of like the before of it, right? This this capturing, like, I don't want this advice is really indicative of this past history of this relationship, right? right. 
And so if you've had a conflictual relationship with your kids and as they grow older, the best way to approach that to try to build that back is probably not going to be like, oh, let me tell you what to do, because they may interpret that as like, oh, why, why is this parent doesn't trust me? Why do they think bad about me? As yeah. opposed to a place where they're thinking, oh, we have this great relationship. I, I need your thoughts on this. Or, or what do you think about that? Right. That's a different type of mm -hmm. process than this history of conflict that may yeah. then be exacerbated, exaggerated by, right. here's my advice for you. Mm -hmm. Yep. You think I'm incompetent. That was mm -hmm. pretty, that was overstepping. Yeah. So it sounds like what they're observing here might be part of some sort of cycle, right? How, from your perspective, would be first step or second step or a potential step of breaking that, that negative cycle? Well, I think, I think the asking, asking whether somebody wants advice is, is kind of the piece that I took away since I make, I make that recommendation quite frequently yeah. when I train the physicians I work with. So that came to me first, but I also think informational support is the frame that you had described. They were using Patricia. There yeah. are other kinds of support to offer. And maybe it's not like the loaning money is I think one thing you described. Uh, there might be other ways to connect and spend time together in a way that isn't about advising on life's problems and more kind of appreciating one another and feeling like that's less demanding and less critical and more supportive and warm and open. So focusing on kind of ways to build positivity in, in the relationship. So you have that foundation so that when advice maybe is necessary to give or yeah. receive, you have a better foundation to hear that yep. advice. That's a great way to say it. I love it. Uh, good advice, Patricia. Good advice. Far, far and few between, but I'm glad at least that one was good. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Hey, finally time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice. <laughs> This is true. Um, in our culture, we hear relationship advice from parents and families and friends, as we just discussed in the academic deep dive. We also see advice about how to be in relationships from movies, TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on all of the social medias, blogs, and all those numerous top 10 lists that cover the internet. But a lot of this actually just isn't good advice for our relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. You have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attached podcast, or, you know, just go straight to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message right there while you're at it on all of that worldwide web surfing. Cause that's what the kids use these days. That's the term they use surfing the worldwide web. Please like, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or on our new YouTube channel. And of course, share it with your loved ones. This might be a really indirect and subtle way or not so subtle way to give advice to your loved ones. I'm not saying we're recommending that, but it's a possibility. So today we're coming at you from the social medias again, because why not? we got a, a number of them. The first one here is sent to us by a listener, Veronica, sent us an Instagram post from the angry therapist. That sounds aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> so buckle up. 
<laughs> yeah, and the way they start this, I would classify it as aggressive, but here we go. Again, signs are not flags. If you see signs, it doesn't mean to jump ship. It means to start asking yourself questions. The first one being, how much am I contributing to these signs? Always start there. It's easy to blame. Looking inward is hard, but where growth lives. Good or bad advice from the angry therapist via Veronica. I need to clarify a couple of things there before I weigh in here. Okay. Right. So I'm guessing when the angry therapist is talking about signs and flags, we're talking about like red flags, like this is a problematic relationship. I would assume. That's That's how how I'm interpreting it too. And I don't know exactly what they mean by signs, right? Like I think I saw the sign. And Everybody opened. does, Jacob. When yeah. they hear the word signs. Ace of base. Yeah, yep. ace of base. There they go. I'm glad you um, said that first, Sarah, because I almost said ACDC. Um, oh, <laughs> very different. <laughs> very different. Go on, Jacob. Well, so, and I'm putting this in the context of you're starting a new relationship with somebody. Sure. And there are certain things that are leading you to have more questions. Like, wait a second, what is this? This doesn't feel right. And if that is what's going on, I think this can be good advice, right? If you are seeing some like, hey, let's check this out, right? Because that can give you some more information and it might lead you to say, oh, this actually is a red flag. But it may be, oh, we had a miscommunication and we have the opportunity to understand each other and connect better and build our relationship more. So I think in that context, it can be good advice, right? Because that gives you the opportunity to, to fill out a relationship, to talk about things. But it's really important to differentiate, have a good idea of what a sign is versus what a red flag is, right? Because you could easily conflate those when you really like somebody, Mm. right? Like, so if you're not, if you're saying, oh, this is just a sign that we need to talk more about, but really it's something that's potentially harmful, toxic, dangerous, that's not a sign, that's a red flag. And just so for this to be good advice, you need to have a clear delineation in your head of what a sign is and what a red flag is. Okay. So good advice. Also make sure to delineate between sign and red flags, red flags, particularly being defined as something that is toxic. Yes. Woods. I'm going to say bad advice. I don't love this advice. I have like a really strong (laughs) internal reaction to it actually because signs in general are like a very kind of odd, subjective thing that we do where we try to interpret what we observe about somebody without having, I think sometimes out loud conversations mm-hmm. about what what are your expectations in this relationship? Is what I'm observing accurate? I'm concerned about how, what I've been seeing lately. Is there any need for me to be worried about you? Here's how I'm feeling. Those are conversations that need to happen out loud. And not only is this person suggesting, this angry therapist suggesting that maybe you should ignore some of these signs or rather it just, that's what it feels like to me. Mm. And instead go inside and do internal work because that's where growth can happen. Yeah. Like growth, growth in relation to what, if the, if the signs are not an issue, then what am I like, what am I growing in regards to? So I think for me, this runs the risk of a promoting confirmation bias, which is the process that we all do all the time cognitively, where we interpret new information or interpret any information in such a way that confirms what we are already thinking. 
And I think that's where signs become concerning for me. We know from the research that we are very likely to interpret things that would be negative or possibly red flags for other people first in a way that's more positive to try to uh, integrate that information into this partner that we have otherwise sunk a lot of months or years into, or we otherwise feel positive about, or all of that gets really kind of, I think, can get really kind of twisted around when it's all in your own head. And I think making some of that external, whether it is with a romantic partner, which this seems to imply this advice is about, Mm -hmm. or checking that with a less angry therapist could be really helpful. (laughs) It's true. So bad advice, because, you know, some, it seems to be kind of encouraging you to maybe not listen to some uh, initial signs or or push them to the side and delegitimize your kind of gut feeling about things. Did I kind of get that? Yeah, I think so. In us. Yeah. Um, So we have good and bad advice. It's very interesting because it seems like you guys are both interpreting it differently. The other thing I kind of wanted to dig in a little bit is the the part that I most listen to is the second half. It seemed like interpreting signs as red flags, he kind of assumes that that means it's like an overreaction or you're being reactive and trying to figure out what's going on in you and your history to recognize where that reactivity, if it is coming from. And I think Woods is kind of saying that reactivity is minimizing your capacity to recognize danger signs. But I think it is always important in any relationship to think about how much you're contributing to these or contributing to the relationship, I suppose. He, he says, I'm contributing to these signs, which is problematic. Um, but that second half, I'm curious what your thoughts are about looking inward is harder than blaming somebody else. Well, I, I think that can be fair. And I and the context, again, I think for this is like, also it could be like somebody who goes on one date with a person and makes all of these judgments about how terrible and like, oh, I saw this, I saw this, they they chewed really weird. So I'm going right. to break up with them, right? That, you know, that's, that's a different kind of sign right. than like, I think what Sarah's talking about, I, which yeah. could be this confirmation bias. So I think if it is like, oh, well, we went out on this one date and they ordered red wine instead of white wine. And so I know we're never going to be compatible. Right. That's a red that... flag for me. But yeah, <laughs> I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a little bit, that's not a sign. And that if you are having those types of signs, that might be a time to do that inward work. If it's yeah. a type of sign of like, they put me down or totally disregard me, but maybe I don't know what it is. That's a red flag. Right. And I think those two things are important to distinguish. Woods. So how many people are making those kinds of snap judgments though? I mean, how common is that, that people are saying like, oh, they ate with a spork instead of an actual fork. Like I'm going to like rule them out well, of my, You've I never think, done online yeah, I think specifically with, <laughs> online, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very common right now in the social world of on, online dating where you're, you have to filter through a ton of, of ton of people. And so sure. you, you start to get tired and um, sure. exhausted from having to do it. So I think it is very common to have these kind of snap judgments about people in the first date. Yeah. I guess that's not how I heard that advice. Okay. I heard that advice more about like established partnerships Something. and there my concern becomes more that we're filtering information that is problematic into our lens of, I need to make this work. Right. And so I think that's where my concern 
becomes more so that this is bad advice that, that also it's very hard to do that work just by yourself alone right. internally probably no matter what stage of the relationship swipe left or keep for life i like it good tagline swipe <laughs> left or keep for life. um but yes. i but i like this because you know some in the context of that swiping left or keeping for life this it seems like this could be good advice but in the context of a more serious relationship or you know once you're past the first third fourth date this might start become to become bad at yeah. Bad advice. Yeah. yeah. Context is important. If the mm-hmm. relationship is established, follow Ace of Base. I saw the sign and it opened up my mind. And now I'm happy living without you. I let you go. Uh oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll just leave it at that. So next we're going to some advice on Twitter at so lyrical. I think this was submitted by our very own uh, Sarah Woods. I told my therapist that I let something slide that bothered me to keep the peace in quotes. And he told me that sounds nice, but you're keeping the peace around you. What about the peace in you? Now I've just been saying whatever's on my mind. Good or bad advice? So I kind of like have a hard time because I think there's good pieces in that and bad pieces in that, right? Like I don't think the reaction to I'm trying to keep the peace is now I have no filter, right? Like I think those are two opposite ends of the pendulum. And I think sometimes it's important to think about timing and structure of bringing up things that are problematic and conflictual, right? Like if you are just gonna be like, every time there's something you wanna jump in and solve the problem right now, or just say whatever's on your mind, that's probably not a good way to build and maintain a long-term relationship, nor is just not saying everything and holding everything Mm. in. So I think there needs to be some thought into, okay, this is something I need to bring up and this is how I'm going to bring it up. Not just, I'm gonna say whatever the hell I'm thinking whenever whenever I'm thinking it. Because I think that is not going to sustain your relationship either, right? So those two reactive pendulums aren't a healthy place to be. It's better to find something that's less of a swing, but more in that middle space where I can sometimes remember things that I need to talk about and then bring them up in a space and a time where we have the ability to talk the issue through. So I don't know if that's good or bad advice. I think I'm firmly on the fence again, which is a very comfortable place for me to be. Well, I think it is a very comfortable place for you to be. You love to straddle fences. Why did that feel sexual? Sorry. (laughs) But but I I actually disagree. I don't think you're on the fence. I think you're saying some of it is good advice and some of it is is bad advice and contextualizing as always. Woods? I mean... To be fair, I I don't know that I submitted this to the podcast. I feel like I just sent it to you because I liked it. I know. <laughs> Sorry. So now I feel uh, ooh, all endorsements. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I sent it because I actually really liked it. I thought it was a really, it felt like a really helpful reframe for when you're not speaking up in places where you feel like you should have spoken up especially later on those, those moments that you regret where like, I didn't stand up for myself or I didn't stand up for a colleague or I wasn't an ally for a friend or family member. And I should have used my voice there is an exercise in keeping peace externally, but really betraying your own self. And that is self-injury in some ways is how I hear this frame. And so I really like it because it's my best guess is the therapist isn't giving that advice to somebody who is otherwise kind of having no filter and 
saying whatever they think and abusing that all over the place. My guess is this kind of therapeutic advice is being given to somebody who is either kind of routinely oppressed or has learned to kind of subjugate all their own thoughts and opinions. And so I just, I thought it was a pretty powerful reframe. That's not I guess not necessarily science-based, but I also didn't forward it out of science. I shared it because I thought it was really lovely. <laughs> I, I also think that if that now I've just been saying whatever is on my mind is, I, I mean, I hope is like an exaggeration for Twitter, right? It got tons of retweets and tons of likes. So I think if you remove that piece from it, the rest of it is good advice. Like what the therapist told him is good advice. And it is a nice reframe, right? For that person to recognize that when you're, you know, trying to keep the peace externally, you're sacrificing things for your own well-being and, and mental health. That piece of it, and I think Jacob would agree that that piece of it is yes. good advice. It's the application of it, which I, I hope and I assume he's doing for humor is probably the bad advice. Like hearing that you shouldn't be like, oh, that means I can tell everybody to go fuck themselves. Like that's probably not like the best. I, don't, I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind that either. <laughs> but that's as a therapist, I'm not, yeah, as a therapist, I'm not in control of what my clients do with my reframes. So, <laughs> so mostly good advice, the application, maybe a little bit extreme, but if it's, oh, I, like I suppose it, it suits yeah. you. <laughs> Sarah. Well, just be beware anybody who crosses Sarah. She's going to give you both uh, fingers and tell you to go. Ahead. No, I'm not. That's why oh, I like this advice. <laughs> so the next bit of advice also comes from the Twitters. Tamara Lewis, MD. She says, best parenting hack of 2020. When your child displays less than ideal behavior, calmly narrate reality. Like a movie narrator. It biza- it's bizarrely effective. Examples. Four-year-old throwing temper tantrum because bath is done. Me, Eli was a very lucky boy. His mother took the time to give him a bath and keep his skin healthy, although she already worked a long, stressful day. Tears stopped him. Thank you, mommy, for the bath. Thank you for the bath, mommy. Example two, 11-year-old complaining we are not having his favorite meal. Me, in the U.S., some families can't afford dinner. Some families are sure they will get lunch during school time, but at home, they worry about having enough food for everyone in their family. Quiet, him. Thank you. Good or bad advice? Narrating. So I'm going to count this as an N of two in terms of the parental intervention. So as a science basis, I don't think we can actually say good advice. And also... I'm only the parent of a four-month-old, so narrating (laughs) what's going on, I don't think would be very helpful for me and my child. Like, if I'm like, Keenan did not want to go to sleep. He wouldn't take his bottle. Like, that's just only for my own purposes. Maybe that would be good at, like, calming my own anxiety, potentially. So I think this has potential to be scientific-backed advice, but... As far as I know, and Sarah could probably correct me, I have heard of no actual intervention based around it's this a narrative. type of approach. Yeah, this type of, oh shoot, this type of narrative approach. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Take it away. Take it away, Sarah. It was There was a wink involved in that as Jacob walked himself right into that trap. Right into it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that so there is a whole 
category of intervention that is based on uh, narrative and developing alternative storylines that help people reframe their problems um, and see them in a totally different light. And I think that this mom has developed a really clever way of doing that because it's it's not punitive, it's not aggressive. You're right; it probably helps keep her calm. Yeah. It's it's an advanced way of almost doing. Um, reflective listening, which we would tell parents to do all the time to kids that when kids are upset, rather than trying to explain to them why they shouldn't be upset, or rather than arguing with them or setting consequences or moving to any of those kind of more exhausting, more extreme measures, reflective listening and saying to them things like, you're really exhausted, you're really upset right now that bath isn't going the way that you want it to. It's been a really long day and you're really feeling frustrated with mommy and them feeling heard and understood without having to kind of argue anymore can be just just soothing enough. So I would say there's probably a good deal, a good deal of I'm narrate support. This right now. <laughs> Go for it. Jacob was feeling sad and like he had imposter syndrome because every time <laughs> he said he thought he had a good take on good or bad advice, Sarah would come in and undermine his own thought process. <laughs> That day, Jacob learned that he's got to work harder and read more so he can keep up with Sarah Woods or else he's going to be laughed off the podcast. <laughs> well, oh, I, mean, I feel surely, so calm now. Surely, I feel calm too. But surely you've read narrative therapy before. I mean, surely you've taught narrative therapy before. I don't believe in postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> that joke was for the three of us only. That right, joke sure. was for a very... Very small group. It was a very nice well, and all the joke, all the therapists listening. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I will actually um, agree a little bit with both of you. I agree with all of the literature. The reflective listening. I think that's very very important. Narrative therapy is a, a great frame of family therapy. I think there also is is a point where you start to invalidate a child's feelings. If you talk about like the other kids who don't have food or you start to guilt children, I've worked a hard day. I mean, of course they sure teaching children appreciation and teaching children awareness of how maybe lucky they are to appreciate what they have, I think is a very valuable skill that parents can teach. I don't know if it's always trying to make them feel guilty for their reactions by thinking about other other people. I mean, there are other ways to go about doing it, I guess. I mean, this is not completely wrong. You're right. She's remaining calm and it's funny, but I think if it works for you and it calms you down as a parent, I am a thousand percent always in for the parent finding ways to make them feel calm when they're trying to discipline or intervening with their, with their child. It's can be, it's one of the most challenging things about being a parent, in my opinion, is trying to not let your anger or frustration get the best of you while you're trying to intervene. And um, so um, if this works for her, I'm here for it. Um, and I think if it works for other people, I'm here for it, but maybe it shouldn't always be, be the, that tinge of guilt shouldn't be the only equipment that you have to be able to defuse a situation. Nailed it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think we've developed a lovely triangle when it comes to the good or bad advice section. I take on the role of the victim <laughs> and I assign Sarah the role of the prosecutor and we make Patricia come in and rescue us. Like I She's the jury. <laughs> she's like, Sarah's like, actually, you're wrong. I was like, no, I'm so terrible. And then Patricia's like, 
You're not terrible, Jacob. It's okay. You did add context. Wow. I mean, to be fair, I think maybe that is the first time I've made you feel that good about yourself. (laughs) That's fair. Maybe it's just kind of like the coalition between the two of you. You're ganging up on me. Is that really what I'm saying? Seeing here? Oh, no. no. Surely that's not it. But you're right. I try to find the best of both both worlds and highlight that. So the last one for today, Miley Cyrus. I know you didn't intend to evoke the name of Miley Cyrus, but I recently, like within the past 48 to 72 hours, believe I'm turning into a Miley, Miley Cyrus stan. I've been watching a lot of her covers, like her Dolly Parton covers, her Blondie covers, I mean, her music, I, I don't think I can name you one of her songs apart from Made in the USA. No, that's not right. Party in the USA. Party in the USA. I came uh, in like a wrecking uh, ball. That one too. Come yeah, on. you're right. Uh, I, 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 I apologize. Going. I keep but going. I have been wildly surprised by her covers recently. Throwing that off I was going to only be able to reference Hannah Montana because it's the only Disney. Well, that was the reference. best of both worlds. <laughs> that's, that was my segue. Best sure. I gotcha. Yeah, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Anyway, turning into a Miley Cyrus stand here. But our last bit of advice comes from H.M. Messinger uh, talking about marriage. It is on Instagram. This was sent in by one of our listeners, Melissa. So thank you very much for sending this to us. So this is from H.M. Messinger. Stop saying marriage is hard in quotes. Six years ago, I got engaged and then everyone all the time was like, marriage is hard, marriage is hard. And I was like, okay, I get it. Marriage is hard, but no one really qualified that statement. So for the next four years, I accepted things I never should have accepted because I assumed they fell under the quote, marriage is hard umbrella. Until one day, as I screamed F you at my ex-husband, I wondered, is this a normal part of marriage being hard or is this something else? Now, years later, I know the answer. Marriage marriage should be hard in the same way any successful long-term friendship in your life has already been hard. Sometimes you disagree, sometimes you F up, but you find a way to make up and then you grow and change. But you don't think of long-term friendships as hard, do you? You don't go around saying friendship is hard. Friendships are hard. Because your healthy long-term relationships are ones in which you have grown and changed together. And you make it a point to not repeatedly or purposefully violate the one another's boundaries. Marriages are bound to face bigger obstacles than friendships yes still i refuse to think of marriage as hard anymore i think of it as a great comfort that my partner and i have and will treat one another like good friends i know that was a long one but what do you guys think good or bad advice so i'm appreciative that she contextualized that kind of a comparison of friendship and marriage isn't necessarily like apples to apples right we're like apples to oranges right both fruit i don't know i'm not gonna extend that metaphor anymore (laughs) both fruit yet one has more citrus and the other one more fiber right and i think that it is good to be clear about what people should mean or shouldn't mean about when they say marriage is hard right it doesn't mean that we should, as we've talked about on multiple times of advice, like take things that are toxic, that are bad, or 
as the messenger hm messenger is saying or messing i don't remember that you shouldn't be ending up yelling profanities at your partner because you've accepted so many things over and over again mm. as thinking it was part of the hard relationship but i also think that in any long-term committed relationship there is going to be things that are difficult right yeah. there's going to be times like um in my relationship i broke both of my shoulders that was hard for me it was also hard because chelsea became my caretaker right and it was a different expectation that we had for each other than maybe say a friend right i wasn't expecting my friend to move into my house and start taking care of all of my basic needs right and sometimes there's more of that expectation for a romantic partner that we are going to be there for each other when things are hard, when things are difficult. So I think that there's a difference between life and circumstances creating stress, difficulty in your relationship and hard in the sense of toxicity, um, things that you shouldn't be dealing with in a relationship. So overall, I think this is good advice. I think it's important just to add that context around. Mm -hmm. So good advice, Woods. Yeah, I think this is bad advice, but for like the same, I think the same line of thinking that Jacob's describing that I think it's really important that from a perspective of like premarital preparation, that people understand that marriage is a lot of work and that therefore it's important to be really intentional about those relationships before we kind of commit fully to a lifetime together. And I think maybe maybe a caveat here is that it it might be helpful rather to include the caveat that we should stop saying marriage is hard or and instead say marriage is not only hard, that there should be lots of positive experiences and supportive experiences and that there should be a bottom line where there's behavior that you don't accept and that in being intentional about entering those partnerships you're also intentional about how that person brings you joy and respects you and what you all how you're going to build a life together so that's I really respect the fact that she's describing that in connection to her own personal experience. Mm -hmm. And also we do know that marriage is a lot of work and marriage takes a lot of commitment and loyalty and effort over and over and over again. And I don't, I wouldn't want to discount all the other science we've described on this podcast alone that highlights how important it is to put effort into that relationship. Right. I, I agree with you. I think what I particularly like about this post is kind of what we harp on a lot in good or bad advice that these advice these kind of colloquial things that we hear throughout sometimes and more often than not obviously like this phrase marriage is hard we've heard it all, all over you know people telling us tell, yeah at nauseam and this is an example of really needing to understand what that means because she mm -hmm. took that to mean that you accept toxic a toxic mm -hmm. relationship and that's not and i think that that's the part of this that is really really good advice mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that toxicity does not mean a marriage is hard so when you hear that advice that your grandparents your parents that you hear through on movies all throughout the decades marriage is hard 
yes, it is. It takes work, but that does not mean that you need to put up with abusive, toxic behaviors in, in a relationship that does not fall under the umbrella of marriage is hard. And I really mm-hmm. liked that frame of, of this. Thanks for listening. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all of the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk.